for listening, but please be advised that I hold no degrees in the topics I talk about. I always encourage using skeptical inquiry to look into things for yourself. If you do this and you find that I was wrong about something, the best thing you can do for me is to let me know. You can do that by emailing livingthroughextinction at gmail.com and putting episode correction in the heading. Please also be aware of the fact that the cuss words just naturally flow out of me and I don't hold back or edit that shit. So listener discretion is advised. This is episode 102 of Living Through Extinction, a short to the point podcast with science and skepticism, environment and wildlife, and stuff I find important or interesting that I want to learn more about. Today I share an article about spotting abortion myths or disinformation, as well as talk about using synthetic sponges to snag microplastics, the possible leveling off of whale counts, why I don't agree with the continuing practice of cemeteries, and an incredible new blood cancer treatment that trains a patient's own immune cells to fight off their specific cancer cells. If you've joined me before, then thank you for returning. I can't express how much I appreciate you. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome! I hope you find it both fun and informative. And if you're interested in supporting the show, all the possible ways are listed after the final segment and thank yous. Today I've got an article on spotting abortion misinformation to share with you. This is from Wired, and the author of the article is Lux Alptrom. The article starts by focusing on a specific headline that ran in the New York Times. In Poland, testing women for abortion drugs is a reality. It could happen here. That sounds pretty fucking scary, doesn't it? An effective detector would result in more deaths as more women would not seek follow-up care when required. This headline is also clickbait. They know damn well that they are distorting the truth. The truth is that Poland is running a propaganda campaign to convince their people that this is true. It's not a real thing, but if the people believe it is, it will help to control them. The author of the Wired article did the right thing. They looked further into it and asked the right questions. One of those questions was, why are these papers coming from a university which is funded by the notoriously anti-abortion Polish government? Right off the bat, that's suspicious. They also went to the trouble to read the papers that were being referred to. That is called skeptical inquiry, and it's how any person can get to the truth of a matter. Upon reading the papers, the deception became even more clear. Both papers have introductions full of propaganda bullshit about the dangers of self-managed abortions. It's clear from the introductions that they went into this with an agenda, especially since the stuff they say in the intros is known bullshit. The studies also used super small sample sizes, which were carefully chosen. It wasn't random. They literally only used people who might make their ideas look good. They say things that the majority of the scientific community and all of those in the appropriate fields consider to be thoroughly debunked. Like abortions cause cancer. They do not. This is propaganda. Or abortions cause infertility. 
not only do they not cause infertility, but not having access to this health care is costing women their future fertility right now in the United States. Their lives and ability to have future children are being put at risk or taken away completely because of anti-abortion laws. An abortion procedure in many cases can save a woman's fertility. That is the truth. Then there's abortion regret, something that is almost universally not a thing. The great majority of us go on to have happy, healthy families, families which may never have existed if the abortion had not been possible. So no, the regret is not there. I wouldn't have my amazing family and my amazing kids that I have today. They wouldn't exist. Why don't they matter? The author talks about how the truth is always more complex than a lie, which is why it's so difficult and time-consuming to properly debunk bullshit. It only takes a second to spit out a lie, and then there's a possibility that lie will never be erased. Person after person will repeat it, allowing it to spread quickly. Not enough people care enough about the truth to look further and find it. They go on with some suggestions for anyone to be able to spot abortion misinformation. I do want you to go read the article itself, but I'm going to share a few here. One of those ways is to check the source of a study. Does the source have something to gain by a specific result, or can they remain unbiased? Who or what is benefiting? Which myths or conspiracy theories does it promote? Does it claim that it will solve a problem, and is that problem even a real thing? Another is to exercise science literacy. I wish more people cared about this. It's one of the most important things in keeping people educated and free. Learn to review a study. Learn what to look for. Remember that the larger the sample size, the better. Learn how p-hacking distorts results. Finding 10 people who fit into the box you have created does not equal a scientific study, no matter what the researcher claims. The scientific community understands as a whole that a clinical outcome cannot be determined based on small numbers. That's what Wakefield did in the 90s. He literally sought out and found a handful of people who fit the criteria he was trying to build and used them to supposedly prove his made-up bullshit. And that bullshit is causing severe harm throughout industrialized nations all over the world to this day. Also a part of exercising science literacy is checking for citations and for funding. Check if the citations are real or if they're made up. Check if they're outdated or if more recent science has negated them. Check if the funders of the research are in it for the purpose of reaching a specific outcome. If they are looking to prove themselves right. In proper science, what one does is try to prove themselves wrong. The answer is the answer and whatever one may want that answer to be doesn't matter. I'd like to share a quote from Lex Alptrom's article about the next point in spotting abortion misinformation, and that's about watching for and recognizing rhetoric. Quote, Unbiased research about abortion will approach the topic with a neutral tone, treating it as the common medical procedure that it is. If the source you are looking at leans heavily on language about how scary or risky abortion is, or about how many people regret having had an abortion, chances are good that you're about to be fed some abortion disinformation." Unquote. And the last point I'd like to share from the article is to check with medical experts. You know, those people who spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and years of their lives studying the female reproductive system? They are the ones with the knowledge. Not the anti-abortion clinic down the street. Not your pastor. Not a Republican politician. There's a link to this article in the show notes, as well as another link provided by the author that leads to yet another tool for combating misinformation. Go check out both and learn to be skeptical, damn it.
Mankind has been harvesting, drying, and using sponges throughout our history. We've used them as a type of container for holding honey and water. We've cleaned and painted with them. We've even used them as contraceptive devices. And now, by using the natural sponge as the inspiration, researchers in China have developed a synthetic sponge which can snag microplastics out of fluid pushed through it. Grabbing and holding onto particles is what sponges are good at. They are coarse and full of pores, and if created to be coarse enough and porous enough, micro and even nanoplastics can be snatched up and removed from fluids when filtered through. The manufactured sponges are made from starch and gelatin, making them biodegradable, which is fantastic for end of use. Most products today have disastrous end of use issues with landfill space, emissions, and more. So something that can be collected and broken down into its building block components is always going to be ideal. They look a bit like large white marshmallows, and they are so light and airy that they can be placed on top of a flower's petals where they will sit as though they were just put on a solid floor. This lightness means that transport will be cheap and less harmful to the environment. Another bonus of the product, tests have proved positive. When plastic-infused liquids were pushed through the sponges, micro and nanoplastic particles were trapped in the complex, jagged interior, removing them. So then it was time to do further testing with tap and seawater. While there were some variations in the effectiveness of the sponges in water with different acidity and salt concentrations, it wasn't severe. Up to 90% of microplastics were removed when conditions were ideal, and it didn't go much lower than that when they weren't. If these synthetic sponges were to reach the point of being produced at an industrial scale, they could even be used in wastewater treatment plants to remove plastics from our drinking water. There are also interesting ideas about using it in washing machines to grab all those bits that come off of our synthetic fabrics and normally go straight down the drain. The next goal for developers is to make it completely environmentally friendly by tweaking production. The current sponges, while biodegradable, do use formaldehyde in the production process. They are currently working to eliminate that part of the process to reach their end goal, which would be an entirely eco-friendly sponge that does the same job. Today I'm going to talk about right whales, but before I get into any of it, I have to take a moment to mention the name. Why are they called right whales? How did they get that name? Well, they were easy to kill because of their habit of slowly swimming in coastal waters. They were easy to retrieve after a kill because their bodies would float to the surface. And they were one of the best resources for oil and baleen. This made this particular species of whale the right ones to hunt. Hence the name. Right whales. I'm face palming, just so you know. Growing up to 52 feet long and weighing up to 140,000 pounds, right whales were hunted to near extinction in the 1890s. It took until 1970, however, for them to become protected under the Endangered Species Act. Every year, the North Atlantic Right Whale Consortium releases annual population estimates on these aquatic mammals. Even with protections in place, human activity has been killing right whales at a faster rate than they're able to reproduce for a very long time. A lot of it hasn't been malicious. Sometimes they're hit by boats. Sometimes they get caught in fishermen's nets and drown. It's not on purpose in these cases. Of course, human-caused climate change has also taken a toll. The warming oceans have caused the prey they generally rely on to migrate to different locations. Right whales now have to travel outside of their comfortable protected areas in order to feed, putting them at all sorts of increased risk. For one example, the right whales who once obtained their food in the Gulf of Maine now have to travel north to Canada's Gulf of St. Lawrence. Unfortunately, right whales are incredibly slow reproducers. 
So it doesn't take a lot of accidental deaths to bring their numbers down. And they have been on a steady decline for over a decade now. A bit of somewhat positive news is that the decline seems to be leveling off a bit. While still declining every year, the decline percentage seems to be lowering, indicating that it may be able to reach a point where it can legitimately level out. That would mean that a number at the end of a year would not be exact, but not much different from the number at the beginning of the year. And ultimately, the best scenario would be for it to reach a point where some of those years are up and some of them are down. somewhat unpopular opinion that the dead should not be taking up space. Our burial practices are one of the most unnatural things about us. Our obsession with keeping our body whole as long as possible with chemicals and our habit of burying it with padding and cushions and clothing and wood and metal and plastic. I don't get it. This isn't going to be strictly an opinion piece though. I have some information to back up my stances, some options to offer, and some references to read. Let's start with a book, actually. I'm not going to go into it, but I believe each of the things I'm talking about today comes up in stiff. Mary Roach did all the work, visited all the places, and saw all the end-of-life things. If you want to know all the things that can be done and are done with bodies after death, read Mary Roach's Stiff. If you're familiar with her writing, you know that despite being communicative of science, her books are easy and fun. She does not write in technical or scientific jargon. She is going to these facilities, experiencing the processes, feeling the feelings that come with what she witnesses, and writing about it in such an enjoyable way. My main concern has always been space. Why are hundreds of thousands of acres devoted to the dead, keeping it from ever being used for food or homes? There are over 20,000 official cemeteries in the U.S. alone, more than 18,000 in Canada, and some of them are immense. I say official cemeteries because these numbers don't include pet cemeteries, hidden cemeteries, or the natural graves sometimes used by Native Americans. But pollution is also a huge deal in our most common current practices. They're a source of both soil and groundwater contamination, and I read about how they're actually changing the environment in their locations. Several unnatural materials are introduced into the soil, which messes with the chemical makeup. Right now in the U.S. alone, 800,000 gallons of embalming fluid are used every year. This is a highly toxic carcinogen, which eventually leaches out of dead bodies and into the soil and air. Cemeteries are also large, flat areas of mostly grass. A lot of water must be used to keep it green and looking nice for those visiting past loved ones. The thing is... These current practices we use are still fairly new in human history. When we see very old headstones, the names on those headstones are those of the most recently buried in that location. Many generations of people were buried, decomposed, and exhumed in a single small cemetery. A cemetery was a place to temporarily intern the dead in order to be able to pay respects, keeping things sanitary while decomposition was occurring. With the passing of time, when the person buried there no longer had anyone left mourning and visiting them, the remains were dug up and the largest remaining intact bones were piled anonymously in charnel houses, crypts, or the basements of churches. At this time, the land was for the living and the recently dead. It really did make a lot more sense. The caskets used were easy to break down. They were simple, wooden, biodegradable boxes. And embalming is super recent in human history. It didn't become a common thing until after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Part of the change is due to capitalism. Graveyards are now for profit organizations. There are nations, however, beginning to realize the flaws in how we have come to deal with our dead. Berlin is in the process of converting their cemeteries into parks, playgrounds, and housing. There are all sorts of options depending on where you live. 
If you must have a plot, demand a shroud and a sustainable carrier or casket. They will do their best to tell you you can't do that, but you can. All you have to do is get up and say you'll find someone else who will, and watch how fast they change their tune. There is no legitimate need to spend money on an expensive coffin. A shroud is perfectly allowable, but capitalism will try to convince you otherwise. Some places allow for a 100-year rental of a plot. After the 100 years, it's recycled and reused. I mean, that's better than what we are doing, right? In the UK, a form of natural burial is becoming much more common. They use a process by which decomposition is accelerated through the use of compostable coffins, which are then buried near the surface. There are companies using coffins made out of mycelium as well. These are mushroom-like fibers that contribute to the decomposition process. It increases the speed of decomposition by up to three times the normal rate. Then, when the process is completed, the remains are dug up and used as a super-rich compost. That's about as natural as a coffin burial can get. There's a place called Milton Fields in Georgia where one can have a natural burial. They are eco-friendly, cost-effective, and available to anyone from any or no faith, which is fucking awesome. In Minnesota, one can have their body resumated. Resumation is also known as water cremation. The body is placed in a bag with a metal frame. It is then loaded into a machine filled with water and a highly alkaline chemical potassium hydroxide and it's heated to 180 degrees Celsius. It's kept at a high pressure to keep the liquids from boiling. In about three hours, the body is completely broken down into its chemical components. Just bones and a sterile liquid remains. It's incredible. The bones are then processed into a white powder, which families can claim just like ashes. The chemical process that occurs is called alkaline hydrolysis. It's a huge improvement over traditional cremation, significantly reducing the greenhouse gas and mercury emissions. Scotland is currently looking into this one, so they may have the option soon as well. If you're in Sweden or the UK, you can go through a form of freezing cremation called promession. The body is freeze-dried, then vibrated until they break down into super small pieces. Any excess water and metal is removed, and the result is ashes. The process is energy efficient and the method does not produce any toxins. While I believe scaling up probably still needs to be done, tree pod burials are also talked about a lot these days. The body is wrapped in a natural cloth and placed in an eco-friendly egg-shaped pod. The pod can be put in the ground and a tree can be planted over it. As the body decomposes, it releases nutrients and microbes to fuel the growth of the tree. And then we have sea burials. Are you aware that it's actually totally legal to do sea cremations and concrete ball burials in most places, including Canada? There are rules and regulations which must be followed. They must be conducted at least the instructed distance from land, there are instructions on how to prepare the body, and of course, a permit has to be obtained. If this is something that interests you, contact the Environment and Climate Change Canada permit officers. They will be able to help you. I think we all understand sea cremation, but in case everyone's not aware, the concrete ball burial is done by encasing one's ashes in concrete and dropping them to the bottom of the ocean. It becomes a surface for certain life forms to attach to and could become colonized in a contributing part of the ocean's ecosystem. From what I read, this method is extremely responsible ecologically. It takes up no land, does little damage, and actually does some good. Unfortunately, where I live, that's not an option, as I only have lakes around me, and these are not legal to do in lakes. There actually aren't a lot of options around here, especially for a family on a budget. I'm probably going to be stuck with a regular cremation, which has huge downsides. 
Hundreds of kilograms of carbon dioxide is produced by a body when it's cremated. And then there's the vaporized mercury that comes from the old fillings. That is also released into the atmosphere. But we don't have a whole lot of choice where I live if we do not wish to take up space when we're gone. And, of course, if our families are on a budget. The environmentally friendly options are not super easy for everyone to have access to yet. There are still many beliefs, behaviors, and practices keeping us from doing the right thing. And it costs money that many don't have in order to have access to many of the options. But that is changing. Until then, there are still ways we can at least not take up space once we're gone. Let's leave the land for the living. I don't know if anything will ever beat making kids born deaf here with a single injection of the gene they are missing, as I talked about in December. But this is still pretty great. CAR-T therapy is a new potentially life-saving treatment for blood cancers. While highly complex and risky, trials showed some people with advanced cancers for whom other treatments had failed being cured. Blood cancer patients don't have very good prognosises. Prognoses? Well, there's a word I probably should have looked up before recording. Anyway, CAR-T, written as capital C-A-R-T, is a type of immunotherapy. It uses immune cells taken from the patient to create a tailored treatment for that individual. This involves several steps, which takes several weeks to complete. The samples go to a lab where they are trained to recognize that individual's specific cancer cells and go after them before being transported back to the hospital and put back into the patient. This complicated, highly specialized procedure is now being made available through the Cancer Drugs Fund for people with certain types of blood cancer. They can provide treatment to between 20 and 30 patients per year. It's a slow start, as everything is in medicine, but it's promising for sure. It's already offering more help to blood cancer patients than we ever could before. So far, the first four people have received this life-saving treatment. It's quite incredible. I am done for today. I've started taking my sound room apart as I'm rebuilding upstairs, so apologies if the sound is a little off this week. I also now do not have a place to make my YouTube videos, so there will be a bit of a break in those while I get set up in my new location. If you haven't checked it out, there are 55 skeptical videos up now, each between 1 and 4 minutes long. That's at YouTube under Living Through Extinction. Thank you for joining me. May your health and sanity continue to be replenished daily. My eternal gratitude goes out to the following people. Jason Martin for helping me get started on this project four years ago. I wouldn't be doing this right now if not for him. Kathy Rayner for her musical contribution on the violin. Paul Palmer for his musical contribution on the guitar. He can be found at WPG Suitcase Drummer on Instagram. Dustin Harder for composing and recording the intro and outro for the show. You can find him on Instagram at Prairie Soul Music. And of course, thank you to the Palmer household. I hope you will choose to join me again in two weeks for episode 103 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoy Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe and rate and to comment and like positive comments on your favorite podcast player, or you can help out by following, liking, and sharing on all the social medias. The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, YouTube, Pinterest, and TikTok, and under LTE Pod on Blue Sky, Hive, Tribal, and Twitter. There's also a Patreon at patreon.com slash livingthroughextinction. There you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more, as well as help me to plant some trees. If you have any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions, please email them to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias. 